You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. John 13. Let's look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. It's a very common portion of Scripture. This is the start of what is called the farewell discourse of Jesus. So this is, these are the final hours, really, of his life. Chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is reaffirming his love for his disciples. He's basically reestablishing, reaffirming, not only through what we're going to study this morning, but in his teaching of even why he came in the first place. Okay, so let's look. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 17. We're going to read through, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to unpack this text, okay? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that. And supper being ended, the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And so Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Well, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Simon Peter said to him, which is classic, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You took a shower, Peter, okay? But not all of you. Your feet are still dirty. For we knew who would betray him. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. And so... When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than, than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would be the teacher, that you would, Lord, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher that you would help me just be a, a mouthpiece, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister your word to our hearts, to our particular 
individual situations and relationships, Lord, that you would, Lord, cause your word to become alive to us and personal. And we invite that work into our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So everyone has a bucket list, right? Well, most people have a bucket list. There was even that movie, The Bucket List, where you have your, you know, before you die, there's a few things that you want to do. There's certain things you want to see. There's certain things you want to accomplish. And all of you, you know, you, you probably have a bucket list, different things, and it's different for different people. You know, whether some people want to jump out of airplanes, some people want to climb Mount Everest, some people want to go to Fiji, some people want to eat a bacon donut, you know, some, there's different things they want to do before they die. It's the bucket list. But usually those bucket lists, they are things that we want to do. They're things that we want to experience or accomplish for ourselves. But think about it. Here's Jesus, the final hours of his life, and what's his bucket list? What is he choosing to do? Get on his knees and serve others. Because this is why he came. This account is a picture of the whole narrative of, the, of, of Christ's ministry and life. He came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to service to the end. And so he's here with his disciples, and he's the teacher, and he's teaching by example. Um, there's so much to this text, but I just want to look specifically at Jesus the teacher, as Jesus the leader, as Jesus the servant. And what's amazing, if you just see Jesus as kind of an example for living, we're going to miss it. But what Jesus does do in this account is he's basically telling us how to live, telling us how to be re in relationship. And if you're a leader, he's telling us how we're to lead as he's ministering to the, to, the, to the disciples and teaching them. So this is John's gospel, and I think that's significant because all the gospels have a little different angle of who Jesus is. Like Matthew looks at Jesus as, as the king, as the great king, the promised king. Mark focuses on Jesus as the servant. Luke focuses on the humanity of Christ. But John focuses on the deity of Christ. That Jesus is God. And so what we find here is God getting on his knees. God serving other people. And notice that he's serving these disciples who are ill-deserving. So what a picture of grace this is. He's even washing the feet of Judas. We see in the text that Satan has already filled the heart of Judas. Jesus knows this, but yet look at the servant king who gets on his knees and washes even this man who's going to stab him in the back. He's washing the feet of Peter, this man who he already knows that Peter's going to deny him, that he even knew him. So here's these disciples. They're full of doubt. They're full of uh, unbelief. They're full of fear. They're, uh, Peter's going to flake out. Judas is going to stab him in the back. But the servant King Jesus he washes their feet. And so what is this about? What does this mean, washing feet? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to do a foot washing this morning. Angie's going to go get the basin. No, I'm just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. And some people do that. But I think you missed the point because we don't need to, you know, 
do foot washing, so uh, in a sense. But in this time, in this culture, it was very important. So before I get into all that, three points, three words kind of to outline this text this morning if you're a note taker. Humility, security, and love. Humility, security, and love. We're going to see in Jesus, and then we're going to see humility, real humility, what it looks like, security, what security looks like, and a true example of love. And in turn, the application is that we would go out and live lives of humility, security, and love. Okay, first of all, humility. Um, A rabbi would never, first of all, wash the feet of his student. That's for sure. So this is completely bizarre for Peter. He doesn't understand. And actually, foot washing would be the lowliest task of a servant in the house. But it was necessary. Back in those days, they wore Birkenstocks. Back in those days. Sandals. They wore sandals wherever they went. And so when you would travel a long distance, no, no vehicles, you know, wherever you arrived, you'd come to the home and you might be clean, you know, and have clean clothes, but no doubt your feet would be dirty. And so you'd come to the house, and it was a sign of, of hospitality. You'd walk in, and the servant of the home would get down and wash your feet. It was actually the lowliest job of the servant. And if you were even middle class, you had several servants. So think about that for a moment. You go to a restaurant, and you've got your credit card or your cash, and you're going to have a nice meal, what's the waiter there to do? To wait on you. That's their job. That's why they're there. To serve you. But think about it a little bit further. Think about who cleans up the tables. What do you call him? The busboy. He takes the dishes off of the table and back to who? The dishwasher, right? So think about a restaurant. Not only is this job not for the, it wouldn't be equivalent to the waiter or even the busboy. It would be the dishwasher. The, the lowliest job in the restaurant, that would be the foot washer in the residence. So here Jesus is taking this role. Now there's an irony to the situation, and it's this. In Luke's gospel, at the same exact scene in, in Luke's gospel, a fight breaks out about who was to be the greatest. Here's Jesus, and they're saying, okay, we're in Jerusalem. They just cried hosannas to him, and so he's going to come in and squash the Roman army and take down Pontius Pilate, and he's going to take the throne. The Messiah has come. All the scriptures of the Old Testament, the prophecies, they're going to be fulfilled. He's going to establish his kingdom, and I'm going to be part of the cabinet. I'm going to sit at his right hand. I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. And there's a fight that breaks out among the disciples. Well, I'm going to be the great. No, I'm going to be the great. No, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to... And here's Jesus. As they're arguing, he gets on his knees and he washes their feet. See, Jesus' understanding of greatness is polar opposite to our understanding of greatness. That's the point. I think of when Jesus, when when Peter acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah there in Caesarea Philippi, he says, upon this rock I'll build my church. Way to go. Good answer, Peter. The very next verses, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I'll be beaten and I will die. I will be crucified. Peter goes, that's not going to happen. 
I just told you you were God a few verses ago. So I'm going to go ahead and take care of the situation. You're not going to go through that. You're the Messiah. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Not get behind me, loser. Not get behind me, stupid. Not get behind me, jerk. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. See, Peter, in his thinking, he was thinking just like Satan thinks, that the way to true greatness is through achievement, through, through, um, through squashing people underneath, through, through kind of personal success. That's what Satan offered to Jesus there when he was being tempted in the wilderness. And the whole lesson there in that passage and in this lesson, because later on Jesus said, hey, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you know, you'll have no part with me, you know. And, and he's teaching Peter and he's teaching the disciples here that their understanding of greatness is completely off base. See, Jesus' understanding of power, his understanding of success is totally different from our understanding. And this is the scene in which Jesus is being the example. He's teaching them once again what true greatness is about because Jesus is going down. He's getting on his knees in order to lift up his friends, to lift up his disciples. Jesus ultimately is going to be going to the cross and dying as a criminal in order to redeem mankind. Jesus is going to the depths in order to bring others to heights. See, that's the paradox here. That's true greatness. That's the kingdom of God, as we see in Jesus Christ, right? The last will be first. The way up is down. The greatest of all is the servant of all. The way to be happy and blessed is to make others happy and to bless them. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it requires humility, true humility. What is humility? This whole act of Jesus is a humble act. Now, I don't know what your definition of humility is, and perhaps you think you're humble and you're proud of that, but, you know, humility, here's my definition, thinking about it. Knowing who you are. Knowing who you are. Knowing who you are, knowing who you're not with a sort of type, a sort of self-forgetfulness. Knowing who you are with a self-forgetfulness. This is humility. I think C.S. Lewis says it perfectly. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, you see. Because there's a humility that we get confused. It's a false humility. I'm no good. Nobody likes me. I've made, you know... People think that's, that's not humility. That's actually called false humility, all right? Jesus came. He didn't die for junk. He died for people that he valued. So God values you, right? You have great value to God. So when we don't see our value to God, we walk around with sort of a false humility that doesn't glorify God. See, a false humility is actually just a form of pride. Why? Because even though we mope around and we're Eeyore, it's still about us, right? Sad panda, right? Sad panda. Go around a sad... Well, it's still about... Nothing's working out for you. That's not humility. That's false humility. True humility is knowing who you are. True True humility actually has a sense of confidence 
But true humility for you and I, our confidence is, in our, is not in ourselves or in our own strength or our own abilities. True humility is a confidence rooted in Christ, a Christ confidence. And that's what the gospel has come to bring to us. The gospel says to us, you are so worth it, and you are so valued by God, and you are so loved by God that God would actually give everything just to have you. He would give everything, his own son, just to make you his own, his friend, his child. Now, if that doesn't lift you up, I don't know what does. But what it leads to is real humility, knowing who we are, right? So Jesus is showing us here and showing his disciples what true greatness is all about. Because all the other things we strive for in life, all the other ways that we try to achieve success and influence in this world, when we look at Jesus, they don't really matter. We see a whole different way. We see how to live counterculturally in a world that is striving for success and influence, okay? Jesus is the most influential man to ever walk the face of the earth, whether you believe in him or not. And what was the power of his influence? Right here. Washing feet. Humility is so underrated in this world. <laughs> and this has so much application. Those of you in the workplace, those of you running businesses, those of you who are an employee or you have employees, the, you, those of you who are husbands, those of you who are wives, those of you who are parents, living humbly, not thinking of less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less in this life is powerful and transformational and more influential than you can even imagine. So humility. Secondly, what we, I see in Christ is here, and is, is his example, is security. Jesus is the most secure man in the room right here, and I'll tell you why. John chapter 10, a little bit earlier, here's what Jesus says about himself. No one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus is going through life and living, and living his life on earth, and he's ministering, and he's saying, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down or take it up again. The whole, the cross was God's idea. Even the manner in which Jesus was crucified, which was the most brutal form of capital punishment in human history, it's the worst way you could die, but yet Jesus chose the manner in which he would die, not just that he would die. I mean, look at this. And it was all his idea. Jesus is the most secure man in this room. Why do I think that? Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he knew uh, that he had come from God and was going to God. Jesus knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. Jesus didn't have to prove anything to anybody. Jesus was so secure in his relationship with the Father that it gave him the ability to serve others and to take the role of the servant, the lowest servant, because he had nothing to prove. Isn't that powerful? To go through life because my vanity gets in the way of my life. 
My vanity of wanting people to think highly of me, of wanting people to think well of me, of wanting people to applaud me, that vanity gets in the way of relationships, gets in the way of, of my walk with Christ, gets in the way of my influence as, as, a, as, a, as a pastor. It gets in the way. And it all speaks to my insecurity, you see, and all of us. When we need people to stroke us and to tell us how great we are, if we can't make it through a day, if, you know, if no one shows up at church, you know, one Sunday, you know, does that have this big impact on me, you know? Like, we want people to, you know, to tell us, because we're insecure. Whenever we put down someone else, we, we, we say, oh, how about them? You know, look how bad they are. We put people down. That's rooted in our insecurity. See, we need to say that, and we need to have that perspective because we need to feel a little bit better of ourselves, and so oftentimes we compare ourselves with other people. See, it's our insecurity. But when we are secure in who we are, and this is what the gospel does, the gospel makes us completely and totally secure where we don't really care what people think. Because I have the approval of God in Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, the same, the same approval that Jesus has with the Father, if you're in Christ, you have that approval with him. See, he took my record so that I could take his record. See, he validated me on the cross. So I am completely validated by Christ. So I don't have to go through life trying to validate myself. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that freeing? See, the gospel frees us up to be secure. And so when we are secure in Christ, and we're secure in our relationship with God, and we're, we've, that security has been brought by the gospel, that's when we can truly be free to love like Jesus. You see? See, if we're insecure, we love each other but there's still something we need back, right? There's still something that there, it's kind of you, you make a bargain, you know? You know, some of the, you know, one of the stupidest things, those of you who are married, did when you got up and you made your vows, you made a promise to each other. I promise to make you happy if you make me happy. Okay. It didn't take you very long to realize that that wasn't going to work out. Your love had to deepen your love had to grow to become not a, a reciprocal love in a sense but and love is reciprocal by nature but a unconditional love where you love each other unconditionally and that's the work of God in our lives and in our marriages right but the reason why we can't love if we're insecure is because we can't fully give ourselves to another person and what we see in Jesus is him fully giving himself to his disciples because he's secure. He's free to love. Jesus knew where he came from. He knew where he came from. He came from the Father. He didn't have to prove himself. And maybe you're here today and you're stuck in the past. You're stuck in past failures. You're, you're, you have regrets of the past. You have regrets of your mistakes that you've made. And you're all bogged down in the past. You... The, Jesus Christ came to wipe away the past, to wipe away every sin. 
And the Bible says that when he forgives our sins, that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Where is that? Oblivion. I'm glad he didn't say from the north to the south because there's a north pole and a south pole. There's an end to it. But from the east to the west, he cast our sins, you see, and he's chosen to remember them so more. Don't remember them no more. See, the gospel says to us, our past is gone, completely gone. And so God doesn't refer to us according to our past. He refers to us according to who we're going to become, you see, in heaven. It's called justification. God looks at us and he refers to us and has relationship with us as if we had never sinned. So if we're stuck in the past, we're not free to love in the present. And so it goes, it says here in verse 3, that Jesus knew where he was going, okay? He knew that he was going to the Father. So he didn't have to fret about the future. You see, his security is, is complete, when you know where you're going, that's when you can truly love in the present. If you're just constantly thinking about the, the next hill to climb, the, net, the next, you know, you're thinking about, you know, forecasting the, the fin your financial future and what's going to happen. And we do this, especially as men. We, we, we're thinking so much about the future and what may or may not work out that we fail to love in the present. We fail to love our kids in the present, fail to love our wives in the present because we're so preoccupied with the future. So Jesus knew where he came from. He knew where he's going. And because of that, he was able to love in the present. The gospel gives us a liberty to love. And what we see in Jesus here is that he was willing to give his life, even to death. See, that's true security. If I know I mean, eternal security means my security, my, my eternity is secure by, by God through Christ. And what courage that gives us to leave it all in the field. We're, we're only on this earth for a very short time, very brief time, and then eternity, right? And so the gospel gives us the liberty to love, to give our lives even to death, you know, that we can take the hit, you know, those of you, you know, if you play football, say you're on the field and it's the end of the game and you know these plays, well, they'll put someone in who's able to take the hit. You know, maybe like the, maybe someone to play quarterback and they just have to chuck it down the field and they're lined up on the front, on the scrimmage line and there's like four blockers because you got a bunch of receivers and there's like two guys completely unblocked with smoke coming out of their nostrils, Right. They're going to take you down, and you're standing up there in the shotgun, and you're going, who's going to block these guys? The point is nobody. See, you were put in the game to take the hit for the success of the team. That's what Jesus did with his life. He took the hit so that, so that we could be redeemed. This is the very nature of Christ himself, even death on a cross. You know, there's an amazing story to illustrate this. Ravi Zacharias amazing apologist, Bible teacher, tells a story about when his children were um, in their teen years, preteen years, and they were constantly fighting. It was just that age where they were constantly at each other over and over, every day, in the car, at home, at the dinner table. He'd ground them. He would, you know, he would, you know, give them spankings. You know, he would, he would 
nothing was working. They're still going at each other. Finally, he, had, he just was fed up. And he comes into the room and he's crying. He's so upset that this has been going on. And he takes off his shirt. And he takes off his belt. And he gets on his knees. And he hands the belt to his son. And he says, I want you both to whip me on the back. That you, I want you to give me a whooping. And they start crying, Daddy, no, why? This is weird. <laughs> He said, wrong's been done, and someone's got to pay. And he laid his life down, and he, he said, after that day, his kids were completely different. See, wrong has been done, and someone's got to pay. And Jesus, who committed no sin, he not only took off his shirt, he, he gave his own life, and he was beaten with a crown of thorns on his head, mocked, rejected, ultimately hanging naked on the cross, humiliated, dying the death of a criminal, committing no sin. He took the hit, you see. Because wrong has been done, someone's got to pay. People have been wounded. People have been hurt. And if God, God would not be a God of love if he wasn't a God of justice. Justice must be served. And so Jesus Christ took the full justice of God on the cross. Jesus steps in and humbles himself and takes the hit for things he is not responsible for. That, my friends, is the gospel. And only a secure person who knows where he's from and knows where he's going can take the hit. Only when someone bears the cross, there's true freedom, you see. You know, the guy, that, the quarterback that took the hit, the play was, you know, he took the hit and now the game's won. Everyone's happy, but, you know, there's freedom. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news. So lastly, we have humility, security, and love. Jesus initiates his teaching when he goes into the next chapters with an example of love before he teaches his disciples about love. And it's part of showing the full extent of his love here. It says here that he loves his own and he loves us to the end. I love that. God, Jesus loves you to the end. To the end, he loves you. You have not exhausted the grace of God. You have not exhausted. You know, Paul says, Why? you know, you frustrate the grace of God, you know, because you can't exhaust it. And so I don't know where you're at, but he he's loves you to the end, okay, and ultimately to the cross. And if you ever forget how much God loves you, close your eyes and think about Jesus hanging on the cross, and you'd say, that's how much I love you. He's given everything for you. Jesus didn't owe this service to his disciples. He just did it because that's who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't owe this service to us, but he does it anyway. He served us in our greatest need. Judas would stab him in the back. Peter would betray him. His disciples wouldn't believe him, but yet he served them in their greatest need. It's a picture of the cross. Here in John 13. See, unless you let Jesus serve you in your need, you can't know him. Think about that. Just don't let that fly by your head. Unless you let Jesus serve you in your greatest need, you'll never know him. You can't know him. And so here's Peter. 
you know? Why, why are you washing my feet? See, see, we don't seek God. God seeks us. John says in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. We must allow Jesus to serve us first before we can serve him or even anybody else. It's the beginning point. And that requires humility, you see. I am a sinner. I do need a savior. I need help. I need redemption. I can't do it on my own. And when you allow Jesus to serve you. That's the beginning point of your life with him. That's the point here. You know, it doesn't mean that God's your Santa Claus, right? It doesn't mean that God's your genie. I'm not saying serve you in that way. You know, I think about, you know, if you're a Bronco, you know, I've had people come up after service, let's pray for the Broncos. I'm like, what? Pray for the Broncos. Yeah, Lord, in Jesus' name, we just pray that the Broncos would, you know, crush the other team, you know, as if the other cre- team doesn't have Christians, you know, either. But it, I, I've always, it strikes me funny. Well, some of you aren't laughing. You actually do pray for the Broncos, don't you? You're going, what, huh? I know who you are. But um, that doesn't mean that God's our genie. We rub the lamp to get, you know, to get something that we want. That, I don't mean service like that. He's come to service in our greatest need, you see. And our greatest need is a savior. Our greatest need is forgiveness. And so here, Peter's like, oh, you can't wash my feet. And he's saying, Jesus said, if you don't let me serve you, you won't know me. If you don't let me serve you, you'll have no part with me. See, Peter, you must allow me to serve you. The, the you in verse 8, when he says, you, not you, Lord, it's emphatic in the Greek, meaning that he's saying, he's looking down. He's saying, how can you be doing this? And Peter's being undone. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel to so many is primitive and it's obscure. It's bizarre. People don't, people don't find God, not because he's too distant Why don't you believe in Jesus? Why don't you believe in God? Why are you an agnostic or an atheist? Well, I don't know, God. You know, he's like so distant. He's so disconnected. He's so, you know, he's hard to find. Like, that's not why people don't believe in God. People don't believe in God because he's actually so low and he's so near. He's so close. See, that's what this is saying. Jesus is on his knees serving you. He's right there, meeting your needs, serving you. Unless you allow him, you'll have no part with him. The gospel makes poor men rich and rich men poor, you see. See, if you take the gospel to Africa, to the Sudan, you take the gospel to Nepal, where people have nothing, and you come and you proclaim, there's a king who's come, his name's Jesus, And this king didn't just set up his throne here on earth. He actually gave his own life to make, to make everyone else, bring everyone else into his royalty. That you can be a child of God. That you can have the inheritance of a son. All the riches of, of God in Christ can be yours. You'll be a king. See, that's what the gospel says. So you bring that to the Sudan, you bring that somewhere else, it's like, 
Jesus is my king. The gospel makes poor men rich, but the gospel also makes rich men poor. Because when we are living our lives by our own view of greatness, our own idea of success, what it means to be powerful and successful and influential and great in this world, you come to a passage like this, and this is true greatness, and it humbles us. It takes a rich man who is confident within himself and his own abilities and accomplishments, and in order for that person to truly be a disciple of Christ, we must get down. We must realize our need. We must realize even if I gain the whole world and lose my own soul, what does it matter? Because at the end of the day, if we've gained the whole world, that's our identity. We've lost our soul to it. But when we humble ourselves and see our greatest need in that life here is so brief, and, and the people around us, our family and our friends and our churches, they're, they're here. And, and the true greatness is getting on our knees and serving one another. Real influence is, is serving other people. But only Jesus can make that happen. And for some, the gospel needs to make them poor. See, we must look down. And we must see Jesus on his knees serving us, a servant king. And what it does is saying, what are you doing? You are the king. What are you doing? See, that's conversion. That, that's life. That's when we truly become men and women af after God's own heart, okay? The reason people can't see him is because he's actually closer than you think, and he's lower than you think. Well, application is too basic. I mean, he's saying, I'm setting this example that you will love one another. He's showing us how to live. He's showing us how to do church. He's showing us how to lead church. He's showing, showing us how to lead families. He's showing us how to lead businesses and companies. He's showing us how to truly lead in this life in verses 13 through 17. He's saying, is a servant greater than his master? He's saying, I don't know how many times as a pastor, you know, is that just not clear? I mean, that, that, how, how, can it get any more clear than that? Just do this. Right here. Now, it might not be washing feet. It could be when you're outside washing cars. You're washing your car. Wash your neighbor's car. It might be washing windows. It might be washing others with the water of the word and the promises of God. It might be washing dishes. It might be, you know, it, you get the point. It's not washing feet, but the need in the room was dirty feet. That was the need in the room. Look in your room. Look in your life. And what's the need? And the gospel gives us the, the confidence, gives us the security, gives us the platform, gives us the, the, the psychological support to actually serve one another. Even in those difficult circumstances, right? Uh, certain, certain situations are trying they're difficult. Certain people in your life, they're draining. You run for the hills. But praise God for Jesus Christ, 
who not only got on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples and serves not only them but us, but went to the cross to do the ultimate, to serve us in the ultimate way. And when we look down and see him serving us, we should ask, how shall we live? How shall we live? Father, I thank you for the word of God that speaks, Lord, to every heart. And Lord, no doubt you've spoken to our hearts in different ways, different levels. Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's several things. But Lord, help us take that, digest it, and Lord, I pray that you'd protect it and that it would grow up and bear fruit in our lives. Bear fruit in our families, bear fruit in our church, bear fruit in our business, bear fruit in our neighborhoods, bear fruit in our city, that you would just cultivate it in our lives as we, Lord, constantly remind ourselves of how amazing you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content, or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com.